Welcome to Redemption's Hill podcast. For more information about Redemption's Hill, go to redemptionshill.com. I'm glad to be here uh, with you. I'm glad to get to uh, worship. I'm glad to break into uh, the word. So we're going to jump into it. We're in Romans chapter 15, uh, verse 14 through 33. So we're going to end the 15th chapter. Uh, and as you can tell, if you look over the book of Romans, we are super close. We'll finish the series uh, in, in one more sermon. So it says this, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given to me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience, by word and deed, by the power and signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around uh, Lycrium, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who, have been, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, and to be helped on my journey there by you. Once I have enjoyed your company for a while, at present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. Uh, for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints of Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they are also to be of service to them in their material blessings. When, uh, therefore, I have completed this and have delivered to them what I was, what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you and enjoy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we pray that you be with us today. Uh, that you help us make sense of uh, this. Uh, Lord, I just pray that you call us um, to be what you've, you've asked your church to be, uh, to give us eyes to see clearly who we are, where we are, what we're doing, Lord, uh, and to see what Jesus has called us to, Lord. So I pray that you will help us to see clearly, celebrate where needed, and, and hope and pray where needed as well. We pray that in your name. May you be glorified. Holy Spirit, do your work in our hearts. Amen. All right, so like I said, we're almost there. Uh, one more week, and we're going to finish the book of Romans. And uh, since we've gone through the book exegetically, verse by verse, it allows us uh, to see that books of the Bible, uh, like Romans, they have a flow to them. They aren't random thoughts to just whomever would flip open their Bible and maybe see them. They're specific words to specific people about specific situations that affected them and that will affect us years later. So it's easy to believe uh, in, in our modern time that we are special 
and that our circumstances, our, our, our cultural situation is, is new. As if we come to this spot in society where we are in unexplored territory that nobody's ever been through what we've been through. And we're in a new spot. Nobody knows what it's like. But Romans gives us a, a really great gift in showing us that the, the human condition and the condition of the present world uh, really aren't new at all. Uh, we saw this in the opening of the book. Humanity has grown in futile thinking before. Uh, humanity has suffered from darkened hearts before. We've exchanged creator and, for creation over and over again. We have given ourselves to lust and impurity, and we have glorified and rejoiced in what is dishonorable all before. Things like uh, envy and strife and gossip and slander and foolishness and becoming inventors of evil are places that humanity has gone on repeat. This isn't new. It's been happening over and over and over again. So while it's tempting to, to look around and think, what in the world is happening? This has never happened before. Uh, it's tempting to wonder, are things too far gone for, for God to work or for God to redeem? The exact opposite is true if we let the Bible speak. Moments like these are not new. Rome was experiencing them 2,000 years ago. But even more so, what I hope that we'd find hope in is moments like these where you're going, what is happening are prime moments uh, for God to do his work. Uh, they're prime moments for the church to be a light into the darkness. As we're landing the book, here's what we want to do. We want to see that Paul is inviting us to take a stake uh, and, and look over uh, who we are uh, and where we are, uh, not just individually, but as a body, as a church. Who are we as Redemption's Hill? Where are we? How are we doing? What are we doing good at? And what are we called to? The navigation of the book of Romans, if, if we remember it from a 30,000-foot view, is the first 11 chapters laid out the gospel for us. Humanity is broken in sin. Uh, Jesus has come uh, to make a way for us to be redeemed. There is no righteousness in the world or available without Jesus coming in. So he comes and atones for the sins committed by wayward, sinful people. And Paul worked to show that the salvation that Jesus offers is a gift. You don't work it off. You don't earn it by being amazing. It is given to you as a gift. So he's unloading the gospel from every angle we could think of in the first 11 chapters. And then in chapter 12 through 15a, or the beginning of 15, then he focuses on the implications of that gospel. The, okay, now what? In light of all of that, that goodness and what God has done now, what, what do we do? How do we live once we've been saved by grace? How do we walk out this beautiful reality given to us through Jesus? And he teased out themes, uh, this is how you walk, by, by hating evil, by holding to what is good, uh, by pursuing zeal, by aiming to serve the Lord with our lives, by loving one another relentlessly, and also by learning how to deal with our liberties and our rights and our entitlements in a way that builds up instead of tears everything down. This is the, the so what of the gospel. Now, as we look at the end of chapter 15, Paul's going to just be ending the letter. What's the gospel? How do I live in the gospel? Now he's landing. And what he's going to do is he's going to give the church in Rome and us many, many years later a, a final push and an encouragement and an exhortation to, to do this. He, he's going to, to, I think, direct us to what theologians have called Great Commission Christianity. Uh, the Great Commission was the last words of Jesus to his followers before he ascended back up into heaven. So Jesus, he comes and, and he lives and he dies and he resurrects. And then he's giving the church, the believers at the time, marching orders. This is what I want you to do while I'm gone. This is what I've called you to. This, with all the authority I've been given, this is what I want you to do. So it's the mandate. It is the purpose of the church. Jesus gives that to us. And we call that the Great Commission. And it's interesting. Churches work really hard to make vision statements. They're like, well, it's already there for you. 
Like Jesus tells us what to do. And so if you're following me, what, what I think he is doing is reminding the church collectively as he ends the book of Romans, hey, this is what you're called to. And he's writing it as a guy who's in the trenches of ministry. It's a little bit hard when someone tells us what to do and you're like, dude, you have no idea. You're not even close to my situation. Well, he doesn't write us from a cushy seminary office. He writes us as a missionary calling us to be missionary. So he kind of has the authority and the skin in the game to be able to do that. And as he wraps things up, what he's going to do is he's going to show markers of the Great Commission all over that long text that we read. And hopefully, we'll see things that Paul is calling us to, that Jesus has called us to long before. And, and here's my, my hope. As we sit over and we look at this text uh, from a distance, here's my hope is that we will celebrate some areas of growth. There's some really cool things that I think we have some really beautiful wins over. And then I hope that we'll hope and pray about some of the areas that we're going, I, th- I think he's leading us back to this though. So we're going to see with honest eyes where we're at, see what we're called to, celebrate where needed, and hope and pray where we need to grow. I'll read Matthew 28, the Great Commission part, real quickly just to make sure we understand what that was, and then we'll, we'll kind of work through it. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, and when they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. And Jesus came and he said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I'm with you to the ends of the age. So we want to be really careful. We don't want to make the entire sermon of Romans 15 about Matthew 28, but we, we do need to pull some markers out of that. There's some key themes that Jesus calls us to in the Great Commission. And the, the, the biggest one that you probably ha, have not missed or heard if you've been around here for a while is he calls us to discipleship. This is the first key theme. Disciples who make disciples is what you're called to if you are to follow Christ, which means believing in Jesus isn't what he asked. He asked you to be a disciple. Disciples follow Christ, learn about his ways, follow him personally, and take other people with him as they do it. It involves learning and growing and pursuing and course correction and maturing all as you follow Jesus. The theme of mission is involved, to see ourselves as ones who live towards seeing others come to know Jesus. This is the as you go, as you live, as you do your thing in the world, show others Jesus in the hopes that they will be baptized into the faith and come and walk in the family of God. The theme of teaching is there. And then here's the other one, the theme of obedience is there. And obey all that he has commanded you. So Disciple, mission, teaching, and obeying are the the kind of grand overarching themes of the Great Commission that I think Paul's going to tap into and go, hey, remember this is what Jesus called us to. Let's kind of see how we're doing there. In the opening of the verse today, or the verse in the text today, Paul says something interesting. He says, and remember, he's looking at the church in Rome, ending the book. He looks at him, he says, I'm satisfied with you. Isn't that an interesting thing to say? I'm satisfied. And he's not doing it salty, like passive-aggressive, like I'm satisfied. No, I'm content. I can think of a lot of ways that I've heard leaders talk about people. I'm annoyed with you. I'm disappointed in you. I can't stand you. I can't believe how crazy you are. I can't believe how hard-headed you are. And yet, in the face of all this outlandish sin and craziness, in the presence of countless idols and sins and and hostility to the gospel, Paul doesn't say anything about frustration or disappointment. He says, I'm satisfied. 
I look and I see what God has done in you and my heart is happy. I'm content. I don't know about you, but I, I found this to be encouraging. Man, I've, I've had countless conversations this year. Uh, people in the church and outside of the church about churches and believers and faith and what seems to be the sentiment that I feel, and I've talked to a lot of other pastors who feel the same way, is there are way more voices who are cheering for leaders and churches to fall and epically crash than there are praying for people to remain faithful and succeed in Christ. It seems like the loudest voices are pointing to failures and, and controversy and outrage, so much so the voices are so loud that it begins to plague the mind a little bit to where you wonder, is it the destiny of all churches and all leaders and all believers just to fall on their face? To not do well? Is it impossible to remain faithful? Is it possible to, to have a good ending or a positive ending or to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant, when so many people are just cheering for the church to fall? And Paul, in a resounding fashion, goes, it is possible. It's possible to, to see a church and, and be content and be satisfied and go, there's a good thing going on there. The church in Rome, with all the dysfunction and craziness around them, hear me, they were doing well. Right? They were fulfilling what Paul had hoped for them. Imperfectly. Right? We're not claiming perfection. But they were imperfectly following the perfect Savior. Yeah, they had struggles. Remember the, the weaker, stronger paradigm that we've preached a month over? And you're like, man, I've seen people argue about rights and stuff all the time. Yeah, yeah, they had difficulty navigating freedoms while building each other up. And they needed to be called not to be conformed to the world, uh, but to be transformed. That means the pull w was strong, and some of them were having a hard time with it. And yet, despite all of that being true, they were doing well. Paul was able to look at them and say, not, hey, man, you fools are keeping me up at night with your craziness. <laughs> Instead, he says, I'm satisfied. I'm content with what I see. God has done a good work. But why? We all know people who, if you ask them a question, they'll straight lie to your face to make you feel good, right? Like the passive aggressive, like, hey, did I make you mad? No. You're beginning to wonder, like, is Paul just saying a nice thing to the church, but he doesn't really want to call them out? And the answer would be, like, no. Have you read anything by Paul? Like, it, that's not possible for him. His truth gauge just simply wouldn't allow it. But here's the other reason that we know he's not just giving an empty, vague thing. He qualifies after saying he's satisfied why he's satisfied. I'm satisfied because, he says, my satisfaction becomes because you yourselves are full of goodness. You are filled with knowledge and you're able to instruct one another in the church. This is a threefold comment about what Paul sees when he looks at the church in Rome. Full of goodness speaks to their morality. They're high character people. They haven't been conformed to the patterns and the ways and the wants of the world. Instead, they are, as the Great Commission would, would call us to, observing the commands of Christ. They're following Jesus even when it's unpopular. They've been transformed by their Savior and they're obeying him. This goodness can't be oversold. This is a massive win for a church. We can't be light in the darkness if we're camouflaged to look just like the darkness. And Paul is confirming, I see the light of Jesus in you. No, no, you're not perfect. But I see the goodness of God working itself out in your life. I see Jesus. I see the light. And then Paul says that they are also full of knowledge. This is theological. 
there tend to be, I don't know exactly when it happened, but this shift away from the head into the heart that went way too far. And we're saying is, hey, you aren't stuck in elementary doctrines. The book of Hebrews, where we're going next, has an interesting part. He goes, hey, you guys should be past this. You should be eating meat, but you're still drinking milk. Like, you should be on to heavier concepts than this. And Paul looks at the church of Rome and goes, hey, man, you, you theologically have grown. And he said some really hard stuff, some concepts that he even said, hey, I, was kind of, I had to be kind of bold and talk about some heavy stuff to you. And he knows that they can handle it. Why? Because they have an undergirding of a foundation of the gospel underneath of them. There is knowledge in them. So there's a, a biblical foundation that supports talking about hard things. Again, while this may seem like a lackluster trade, it's a huge deal. Can we just say it? To be theological is not academic. If you follow Jesus, you're a theologian. Some are terrible theologians, but we all are theologians. We cannot follow the Savior that we don't know anything about. Just at a heart level, Jesus' call again is follow me. How do you follow the thing that you don't know? that you don't understand. Well, I know that he died on a cross. Okay, but what did he ask of you? I don't know, but I believe, in him. I believe in him with all my heart. You can't follow what you don't know. We cannot grow mature and stand firm in a faith that we are content in being uninformed about. I assume if you look around the world and, and pay attention, if you've had just any time in the church, you've probably seen a ton of new ideas in the faith come and go. There's always a new idea or a new bent or a new angle or a new doctrine or a new thing, and it's normally tied with books and other things now, but there's always some, hey, man, like I got to share, I got to tell you. And, and Paul says, hey, guys, you're well informed in your faith, so you're not tossed to and fro with every new idea that comes your way. Many, many, many people have no foundation underneath of them, so when every new idea comes, they just squirrel and they run after it. Paul goes, this isn't you. No, this is not all academia, but you understand who you follow and you understand the faith to the best of your ability so that you're not led astray by everything that comes your way. And this shows the discipleship part of the Great Commission being walked out in the church. They are learners. There is an eagerness for them to sit at the feet of Jesus and understand and know him. Guys, we could spend, we could spend, the, week, we could spend the whole time today just talking about the eagerness to sit at his feet and learn. They are eager to receive teaching, to wrestle with it, and to grow. They're not content with following their hearts and following Jesus in whatever way they feel like. They've invested in learning, and they've invested in growing in what is true. The all that I have commanded you, part of the Great Commission, they take that seriously. I want to know all that you've commanded me. It's sunk in. I want to know the ins and outs of the faith. I'm not talking about I'm going to argue with everybody on the streets about apologetics, but I want to understand the Jesus who died for me. I want to understand what I'm giving my life to. It's a beautiful thing to see people grow in understanding. Whatever came into our minds to think it's just elitist to understand more, it's just wrong. Paul says, I see you growing in knowledge. You're growing in maturity. And then Paul says, you're also able to instruct one another in the church. Remember, this isn't written to pastors. He wrote it to the church. What Paul sees when he sees the landscape of the church is he sees the body, members, the people in the church. In our context, the people without the microphone, regular believers, fathers and mothers and single and married and educated and not and rich and not. 
all of them coming together and being able to build up the body by having something to offer and instruct. This means if they're breaking bread in the home or they're gathering to worship or the ins and outs of of life with other members of the church, each member is able to bring something to help instruct and show Jesus and the gospel to other people. We live in just an odd time. And here's the thing I've had so many conversations about too, I feel like, this year. There's a lot of people yelling and shouting about leadership and power. And they lament the idea that a few people do all the teaching and so they have all the power. And they cry things like absolute power absolutely corrupts. And I I get all that, but here's the question that I ask in return. How do you avoid that then? Right? If the idea is a couple people have all the power, a couple people do all the teaching, so, so nobody else gets to do anything and nobody else has power, okay, great, I, I get you, I hear you. How do we not do that, though? How do you avoid a couple men not doing all the leading? It starts with what Paul notices here. It starts when the entire body is able to instruct. Everyone has something to give. Each member sees themselves as a vital part of the body. Right? We don't want to be amputated. I'm a valid part of the body. I have something to bring. So in our context, that would be like coming to missional community, not going, hey, do we just feed me? It's, hey, I want to see Jesus here with you, but man, I'm able to, I may be able to speak the gospel into you as well. I can instruct and I can share and I can teach you. It, it comes about when each person has the ability to hear from the, the Holy Spirit and instruct one another. Remember, Jesus says, I'm going to send the paraclete, the counselor, to show you who I am, to encourage you and teach you. So this everyone instructing everyone, the body building each other up and being able to instruct, it starts with the mentality of the Holy Spirit can speak to me. And that me would be you, not just me. And through what the Holy Spirit shows me, I can show other people Jesus. Notice Paul didn't say each person gave a sermon, right? Like, hey, you're next week and you're next week and you're next week. That's not, ooh, that's not what's happening. But each person is able to instruct. Each person has something valuable to give to the body. This exemplifies the analogies of being the body. In the loud voices, we need to remember when members stop asking how the quote-unquote church can serve me personally, and they start to ask, what do I have to offer the one and others? That's how a body that instructs one another is born. This is where the beauty of the body can be seen, and this is also where upside-down power structures go to die. It's when each person is a value member and has something to give and has something to offer. But here, here's what it takes, and here's what I don't think people understand, or at least they're not willing to give. It's easy to yell about power structures you don't like. The only way to kill them is to kill consumeristic mindsets. The only way to get that gone is to stop coming to church going, what do you have to give me? What amenities do you have for me? What things do you have for me? And it's to come and go, I want to see this body mutually built up. And, and sometimes I'll be quiet and sometimes I'll have something to offer. This is why Paul is satisfied. He sees this healthy trade amongst the people. Everyone's not preaching every week, but everyone understands I have something valuable to bring. I can build up my brother by showing them Jesus and pointing the gospel into their life and showing them what the gospel says about certain things over their life. Paul sees this, and he's satisfied. In the words of the Great Commission, they're making disciples, not just consumers. They're seeing the teaching 
of all Jesus has commanded. And it's happening from the lay person as well as the elder, from the single person and the nursing mother and the farmer and the tradesman and everything in between. They all hear from the Spirit and have something valuable. If we look at verses 16 through 18, we see more of what this great commission Christian would look like. We see it by looking at Paul's life, not just the church, though. Paul said, I view myself as a minister of Christ to see others know him. Going on to say, I'm proud of my work for God. How does that, how does that resonate with you? I am proud. There's something now that says, oh, you, you can't be proud. He was. Why? Because I proclaimed Christ crucified to those who are lost. And through that, those who are far off now know Christ in word and deed. It's okay to remain faithful and see God do good things. There's a switch that happens in a person when you know they've become a disciple. And it happens when they begin to pick up their head and they look at other people. And they begin to ask the question, how can I show them Jesus? It's when they begin to see themselves as missionaries and ambassadors, not just believers. And this is the switch. And it's not that these people think that they are God's gift to the world, but they realize God wants to give the gift of grace to other people through them speaking. And this is what we see in Paul. Granted, it's at a massive level. Right? We're all not going to do what Paul did, but we have to understand what Paul was called to wasn't unique to only him. We are called to this as Christians as well. Jesus says, all who follow me are to display me. Proclaim me to the world. And this is what Paul says. I'm proud, not that I'm the greatest Christian ever, but I'm proud that God has done good work through an imperfect guy like me. Do you know my history? Do you know what I did? Do you know what I had in my rearview mirror? And God has seen people come to know him and serve him and love him, even with my mess. I'm proud of that. I'm proud that God has used me. And this, again, may seem like bragging, but it's not. It's a genuine joy in God's work. It's okay to find joy in seeing God do cool things. You go, you see it when he says, I proclaim nothing but Christ crucified. Right? There's a way to say, like, man, I'm proud of all the work, and like I have such speaking abilities, and I blog so well, and I had this podcast, and like, so many people, I was like pretty creative, and like, to God be the glory. No, no, no. He's, I'm so proud because when I just talked about Jesus crucified, people came to know him. This follows the Great Commission Christian mandate that as you go, as you live in the realms of your life, with your job, with your family, with your neighborhood, you do, see, you do your part to see disciples made, to see the lost saved. Now, our as-you-go moments are going to look different. Why? Because we go in different ways. Our lives look different, and that's completely fine. We need to understand the, the as-you-go moments in our lives, they matter. And they're all a part of being faithful to Jesus. Jesus' plan has always been that we would share him with the world. What I encourage you with is asking the question, do you feel this in your life? Do you feel the, 
the call to see others become disciples, to see people know Jesus, to see your neighbor or your friend or your mother or your brother come to know Christ. Not do you feel like a rock star or a theologian or so many times we get to this and you're like, well, I kind of want that to happen, but I don't know it all and I'm still kind of a hot mess and I do this that I probably shouldn't. And No, not are you perfect enough to see people know the perfect, but do you feel the call to see people come to know the perfect? And if not, I just encourage you in a couple ways. The first is just blanket level. Jesus called you to this, not me. It's not a Redemption Hill thing. It's not a thing of the West. It's not a growth scheme of the American church. Jesus called us to it himself. It's his plan. And the second is you don't need to be perfect to walk this out just faithful. Again, we always wonder about the holes in our game and what I don't know and what if they ask me this question and what if I feel dumb and all. You're going to feel dumb sometimes. That's fine. The beauty of the gospel is God does amazing things through hot mess people at times. You don't have to be perfect. He was. And then I would ask you to see verse 21 this morning with new eyes. Look what he said in verse 21. Those who have never been told of him will see. Man, what if we believe that? And those who have never heard him, they'll understand. In the 21st century, it's easy to believe, well, everyone's heard about Jesus. Where where do you want me to go, man? Well, in a sense, that's true. But a sense, it's completely false. I'll, I'll throw a guess. Maybe over the last 20 years, like, if you haven't noticed, things have changed. We are not a churched culture anymore. We are a de-churched culture. The, the word is that we're post-Christian. What does that mean? Well, Christianity's here, and the world has advanced past it is what the world thinks. We're post-Christian. We tried it. It was kind of like a college phase. It didn't work out for us, and we're done. We're post-Christian. What does that mean? Well, if we've been that way for a while, it means a large number of people have never actually heard the true gospel. Why? Because they think we're past it. A large number of people have never actually heard of Jesus. They've never actually heard of what the Bible says about the Savior King. So yes, they've heard the name Jesus, and they've probably heard caricatures about him given by television or movies or, or maybe the people who hate him and who, who speak about him the loudest while the Christians don't actually talk. But they've never heard the good news of the real Jesus. But they would if we would tell them. Does this mean everyone's going to come to faith? (laughs) No. Some will, though. So, yes, the world is crazy. There are people who deny it. Yes, the church looks like it's dwindling. You look at the numbers, and there's been a mass exodus out of the church. Completely true. Yes, the world has moved on to other things with a quickness in the post-Christian mindset. Here's the thing. It's all happened before, and that's the exact spot that Jesus does really beautiful work most of the time. That's the exact time when the world looks dark to show the light of Jesus through real conversations and sharing him and walking next to people and showing them who God is. And through that and maybe the people of God being what Jesus asked them to, God may save some. This is the plan of redemption, not pastors, but the people collectively. 
I realized early on that exhaustively we would not cover that text because I probably read all of that. You're like, whoa, we gonna do all of that? Nah, no way. Um, and that's okay, though we exegetically preach, this isn't a, a college class where we need to go into the Greek of each word. What, what we did on this one is we just wanted to look for themes. Um, the final theme that we'll draw from is in verse 30, and this is a call uh, to prayer. Paul says, I appeal to you. And notice how he sets this up. Me and my wife have this thing, and, and, and like when we're, when we need to tell each other something and get them to pay attention, we kind of front load it. And like for me, she'll tell me, hey, I've been thinking about this for a while. And I'm like, okay, don't be a jerk, listen to her. <laughs> like it, it's, it's the front load part of like, hey, there's some seriousness to what I'm about to say. I think this is what Paul's doing. I appeal to you and then listen to what, how do I, do I appeal to you out of my wants or my desires or do I appeal to you out of my whim? No, no, I appeal to you by our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of the spirit. Strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. Notice the whole Trinity was there. To be walking in the fullness of being great commission Christians, it's going to take striving together in prayer. It will not happen with prayerless people. Jesus told us, all power has been given to me to tell you to go, to see disciples made, to push back darkness, to see God glorified. To be serious about this, we'll have to deepen our dependence on Christ through sharpening our prayers to the Father through him and by the Spirit. Paul was calling the church in Rome to this as he closed. And the same call is the call to us to do the same. Strive together in prayer that God will work. I won't tease that one out too far except to acknowledge the need for it. God's people striving in prayer is something that we need to regain. And I would say that we stands on Redemption's Hill and the church in the West as well. The redeeming work of God will not be carried out by prayerless people. And the redeeming plan of God will not happen on our own power. But the good news is that God has all the power and he's going, hey, come talk to me. Come ask me to work. Ready for people who will call upon his name to unleash his will and the beauty of the gospel. Like, how does that work with sovereignty? I don't know, we'll ask him one day. But he calls the people to call upon his name in prayer. To wind down for today, I mean, I'm grateful for what God has done in us here. The opening section about being satisfied with the three markers, I just sat back and looked at that. I can resonate with that. When he's talking about with goodness and growing in knowledge and able to instruct one another, I feel like, and I'm always judging, like, hey, are you serious there? Are you like, you're just trying to make yourself feel better? Like, I feel like those are areas that we've experienced profound grace and growth in. Right? There, there's a sense of growing in goodness and godliness. There's a desire and knowledge. I mean, we, we've, we've crushed through Romans, and, and like, you haven't like, hey, can we do something else? Like, there's a growing in maturity of understanding, and nobody's going like, hey, you use too big of a words and theological concepts. At least not to me. <laughs> I 
And probably the greatest area of victory that I, that I can kind of resonate with him is the teaching one another. And I see the beauty of that uh, really in our, in our missional communities is the greatest example. I hear stories of it in our DNA groups as well. I mean, it's been cool to sit through talking to other MC leaders, and we've kind of changed with the shared leadership structure. And as you guys have seen, if you're in an MC, um, the, the leadership load is spread out. But what this has allowed is a whole lot of other voices to regularly instruct and build up. And I've heard other people go, oh my gosh, what so-and-so or so-and-so has to bring to the table or the way that they're leading. or the, like it, Man, it's encouraged me. I didn't even know that was in there. There's this mutual upbuilding happening. And my heart's joyful over it. We see that, like, we lower the bar sometimes with kids' classes. We see that also in our kids' classes. Like, we have good kids' classes. We're not just babysitting your kids. There's gospel-centered curriculum that people are getting and they're going over and they're help teaching your kids. There's other areas that it's blossoming as well where the gospel is being shared and reminded to each other by one another. Not just by me or the elders or people with the microphone, but you, the body. Uh, this is currently in Redemption's Hill. There is currently in Redemption Hill a greater amount of this mutual upbuilding and mutual instruction that there's ever been before. That's a cause for celebration. Right? That's a good deal. You, the body, are bringing good gifts to see the body built up. Man, thank goodness. Like some of you guys are heading, helping set up speakers, right? This, that isn't there. Like we set this stuff up and some of you are helping with kids and all of this stuff. Like thank goodness for your hands. But you're also building each other up in instruction with the gospel. We need your hands but we also need your voice to share the gospel with each other. And we're seeing that. That's a good marker. This is a beautiful thing to celebrate. And as we worship in song at the end and get ready to take communion, I, mean, I would just encourage you to recognize the gift of encouragement that it is and thank the Lord for it. There's always this tension of, of braggery when you say things, but here's the beauty. You can look around. Like we're not 8,000 people but not every church has a culture of people where multiple people are sharing the gospel. That's a win. That's a good thing, and it's okay to be thankful for that. The other parts, um, the realities of being missionaries to the world around us, and about striving together for prayer, for God to work and move. As we close to landing the series, I think those are the things that God is saying, hey, there's some beautiful stuff that, that I've done over here. I want to do this too, though. Right? I want to move into the, the mission and prayer. And I think we can all sense it, right? 2020, we all got rocked, the whole world. We're all trying to understand, like, how do you live and how do you keep your head above water? And, oh, my gosh, everyone's depressed. And, oh, my gosh, like, we all bought too much stuff on Amazon. Like, all of this craziness happened in 2020 where you just kind of turn in because nobody knows how to cope. I think the Lord's going, okay, hey, we're through it. Let's, let's turn back out. It's a, it's a perfect timing for God to change that. And then say to the body, my, hand, my, my plans for you haven't changed though. The hope is that you would reignite the passion 
to see and believe that, man, some, some of your brothers and sisters may come to Christ, your coworkers, your neighbor, may come to hear about the real Jesus and, and, uh, and follow him. If we shared him, though. Here's the thing. I, I don't. I don't offer a, a a guilt trip or a condemnation. Just a, a prayerful what if. What if now is the time that God wants to save? What if He wants to save some of the people that you gave up on, like now? What if the darkness of the world is the perfect time? God's mission has never changed, even if the face of the world has. As we've talked about the last couple of weeks, um, what God has been stirring uh, the elders towards, and I think others as well, is also recapturing prayer. We will not see this mission without prayer. What if our MCs became places where we see mountains moved, right? This was the metaphor in the Bible for things that you thought were impossible to happen. What if we began to pray, believing that God would do those things? Here's the other thing. What if God were to connect with his people in corporate worship gatherings through their prayer here? Not once in a blue moon, but regularly. What would that change? If there was an excitement to come to church on Sunday, because your heart yearns to pray to the Lord with the people of God and see him draw near through the Spirit, because he said he would. I just ask you to spend some time contemplating that as we close. With any leadership that I have over you, can we ask together, God, will you give us a heart of prayer? You pray the prayer of David over it. Give me a new heart because mine have tried. I can't, I can't do it. Give me a heart that prays. That prays. Begin to bear your heart before the Lord. Like the Father in heaven is good and he's kind. He's shown himself worthy of it. As we land, we'd know that, and there's some beautiful things that have happened. They're cause for celebration. Lean into that. See it for how great of a blessing it is. It's okay to be thankful. And then we can ask for help in the other areas that he's drawing us to. Lord, help your mission be reunited in your people and help prayer come from our lips. I think that's the best way to begin to land this series. We have one more sermon here. Um, celebrate where needed. And then ask for help in the other spots. We're going to take communion for today. Clayton, you can come up. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26 says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. 
for as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Here's the beauty in the areas of celebration, in the areas of hope and prayer. The sacrifice of the Lord still stands. So we can come and we can take, Lord, you've, your body has been broken, your blood has been spilled for, for all of my needs. And we can come and we can be encouraged in that, thankful in the areas that he's been so good and kind. And then also in areas where we go, man, my mission hasn't been anywhere near my heart or my mind and I'm, I haven't prayed at all. The body and blood of Jesus is still there. So you can come and you can confidently take and know that he is good and he's kind and he's still sacrificed for you. So at any time, then I would ask that you would take and remember those. What a loving savior we have. Let your heart be encouraged. As we try and pursue more prayer here, we mean it. We're changing a couple things around. Even on this front song here, here's what I would encourage you. Spend some moments for the first verse or so just pray where you're at. Thank him for the good things that he's done in us. Ask him for the things that we still need. We're not going to become a prayerful people without time to pray. So we give you a couple moments. Wrestle with the Lord. Thank him for his goodness. Ask him for his mercy and kindness for the areas that, man, we're just a ways off. Ask him to give us new hearts that want to pray, that want to see him. Ask for the Spirit to draw near to the people of God through their prayer. I do not think it's a waste to spend some time just praying and going to the Lord. And then after that, we stand and sing with us. You can take communion at any time. You don't have to be a member here to do that. We just ask that your faith be in the Lord. My friends, it didn't expect to get choked up, but sincerely, may God has done some good things. didn't let the wheels come off and there's more that he wants to do. I hope that you're encouraged by that. Let's ask him to do it and thank him for the goodness and mercy that he's already given us. God, I pray that you draw near. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come and work. Forgive us for the ways that we've grieved you and walked as if we don't need you close to your people. Show us the beauty of the sun. Speak to our hearts. For those who have never felt the presence of the Lord, Lord, would you draw near to them? Holy Spirit, would you show the kindness of the Father and the goodness of the Son to us? Work in our hearts. Slow them down. Let us be captured by your mission and your plan. Lord, I pray that even in our time of prayer, reorder our affections and our focuses. Overwhelm us with the love of the Savior. Thank you for your patience and your kindness. Thank you for walking us through hard years. Pray that you would continue to work and you would be glorified and made much of. Draw near to your people.